Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Arizona Showdown, or The Ranch Woman, written by Clarence Buddington Kelland. When Kirsten South's once wealthy father suddenly passed away, she found he had gone broke, leaving her nothing but a profitless ranch. Fresh from an East Coast finishing school, Kirsten set herself a task of fantastic difficulty, managing, quite without experience, a ranch in Arizona. It was the only asset she had left. That and her hunger for independence impelled her to make a go of it. Finding that her manager had let the ranch slide, Kirsten discharged him, leaving a staff of her maid, a cook, four cowboys, and a new arrival, a dirty, ragged, bearded, derelict cowpoke named Sundown. The endless work and monotony was broken by the call of Sam Boston, a real estate broker who glibly told Kirsten he had brought a buyer for the ranch. Kirsten told him in no uncertain terms that she would not sell. But as they were leaving, she heard them grimly declare that they would have to put on the pressure. One night the hay was deliberately burned, and the next morning three of her five hands quit leaving only Ramon and the taciturn sundown to lighten Kirsten's otherwise impossible workload. Ramon informed her that a stranger had offered all of them money to quit their jobs. Only he and sundown had refused. Kirsten set out for Phoenix at once to hire more ranch hands and see her banker. Losing her way among her vast acreage, Kirsten stumbled on a group of men rustling her cattle. Creeping nearer to see who the men were, Kirsten had no idea that she was about to be plunged into the most terrifying experience of her life. Nor did Sundown, riding the fence to check for breaks where the cattle might slip through, realize that his facade as a man who needed no one and nothing was about to be cracked, or that he would soon be called on to exercise his legendary skill with a six-shooter a skill he had come to despise, when he and Kirsten waged the strangest showdown the West had ever seen. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Arizona Showdown. Part 1 Two riders and chaps with spurs at the heels of their boots rode up the fence line from the river. They dragged open the barnyard gate and unsaddled in the corral. Stiff-legged, they walked along the Okatia fence that shut in the Broken H Ranch House, and sought shelter from the blazing Arizona sun in the shade of the unpainted, uninviting bunkhouse. As they rounded its corner, they halted suddenly, for sprawled at their feet, face cushioned in his arms, was the inert, sleeping figure of a man. "'What's this?' asked Ramon. "'A short,' but amazingly graceful Mexican of middle age. Mosi's horse. Look at them boots, responded the second cowboy, who answered to the name of High Pockets. The high heel of one boot was missing. Both boots were worn and split as they never could have become if their owner had been occupying a saddle. Nothing but miles of trudging could have wrought that ruin. Ramon's liquid brown eyes opened wide as he reflected upon the thirty-five miles of blistering road that wound from the ranch house to the junction with never a human habitation between. "'Another little old line-rider,' said High Pockets. "'Mannix, you'll be plum-tickled to death.' He stirred the prone figure with his toe. The man grunted, turned on his back, raised on an elbow and stared at the cowboys with red-rimmed, unfriendly eyes. High Pockets thought of the eyes of a hawk he had once caught in a steel trap, eyes that hated all the world. Little else of the man's face was visible, for it was a thicket of beard, the unkempt beard of a man who has forgotten to care how he looks. It was impossible to guess his age. All one could read was the bleak, bitterness of one who has set himself aside from his fellow men, or who has been driven out from among them. Bud, 
said High Pockets in his throaty drawl. You sure picked a good day for it. You're gonna be as welcome as a rattlesnake at a round dance. We aim to keep the place neat today. A stranger stood up. He was a hand's breadth taller than Ramon, but came little above the shoulder of the tall high pockets. Any chance for a job? asked the man. Talk to Mannix when he rides in. Don't really want a job, do you? They call me Sundown, the stranger said, as if it were a matter of no consequence to himself or to anyone else. The pair of cowboys walked away to the bunkhouse door. Sundown stood staring after them with hostile eyes, but did not offer to follow. He sat down with his back against the vertical boards of the structure and closed his aching eyes. Voices from inside came to his ears through the mosquito netting that covered the window openings, and he listened. He did not eavesdrop. He was not inquisitive to hear what might be said. It was rather that he was too weary, too famished, to make the necessary effort not to listen. I'll bet you, High Pocket said. She takes one look and hightails it out of the country. For why? asked Ramon. This good country. Look at this here greasy sack outfit, High Pocket said contemptuously. This ain't no little old dude ranch where they got water a-running out of pipes inside the house. Where at is the nearest telephone? Thirty-five mile off. I'll bet you she never even seen no kerosene lamp. It is good ranch, said Ramon stoutly. Good water, eh? Run old time in this river. Sheets on those bed inside. Ne stove for cook in the kitchen. What you want, eh? Nearest neighbor woman, fourteen mile off, and her a Mex, High Pockets continued. I bet you what she takes Saturday night, she calls a both. He labored the broad A ironically. Nix, Ramon, this owner. She gives one look, lets out a screech, and hightails for the nearest place that's elegant. High Pockets, said Ramon, out of the depths of experience. You are one fool for guess. This girl, she's a woman, eh? What she do nobody know, not so even herself. It is good that one who owns a ranch should come for Bassett. The loose boards of the bridge across the irrigation ditch rumbled and the voices inside the bunkhouse became silent. Feet moved toward the window as the pair of cowboys peered out of the low window for a first sight of the arriving owner of the Broken H. The pickup truck with Broken H Ranch lettered on its body whirled across the sun-baked ground to the gate in the Okatia fence surrounding the ranch house. The watchers caught only a fleeting glimpse of a girl sitting between George Reason, the ranch manager, and an older woman of generous proportions. George got down, opened the gate, and drove through it to the rear of the house. "'Here we are, Miss South,' said Reason. "'Is this the house?' asked Kirsten South. She stared at the tiny building with its unpainted exterior, its roof of corrugated tin, and compared it to the home she'd been compelled to leave on Long Island, a home reached only after one traversed a quarter of a mile of bluestone driveway winding through a beautifully planted estate. It is true she had driven today for fifteen miles on her own property before she reached this new home, but there had been no bluestone, no expensive planting no carefully tended acres of green lawn. Nor when she reached the end of the drive was there a great colonial dwelling kept in order by a corps of trained servants. The screen door of the porch opened and closed behind a negro with gray and kinky hair, a large man with grave, kindly features, who spoke with a beautiful, sonorous voice. Yea, he intoned, the sparrow hath found a house and the swallow a nest for herself. Let down, Miss South, and be welcome. For the first time since she left the train at the junction, 
Kirsten South smiled. She was aware of a graciousness, a friendliness, an understanding. Here was a negro in a butcher's apron, doubtless the cook, but he understood. Who are you? she asked. I'm Walter, he answered, showing white teeth. The cook, supplemented George Reason. The manager was helping the stout woman down from her seat. He extended his hand to Kirsten, who took it and sprang lightly to the ground. The face of the stout woman was not sullen. It was frightened. The desert and the mountains and the vastness terrified her. Mr. Reason, Kirsten said, I will take a bath, then we will talk. Yes, Miss South, answered the manager. He lifted his brows inquiringly toward Walter. I fetch in the wash tub, Walter said. Water's steaming on the stove. She followed him through the screened back porch and into the narrow kitchen with its wood-burning range. A swinging door gave into a slender room with a matched-board ceiling, which was both dining and sitting room. Off this were two doors giving into small bedrooms. "'Goodness gracious!' exclaimed the stout woman when she and Kirsten were alone. "'This is the awfulest place I ever saw. Miss Kirsten, you can't stop here.' "'I have no choice,' Kirsten said, not impatiently. She was as frightened, as bewildered as her companion, but pride concealed it, strove to conceal it even from herself. "'You're here, Maddie. Make the best of it. You didn't have to come.' "'You had plenty of choices, Miss Kirsten,' protested Maddie. "'And I did have to come. I gotta be where you are. I always was since you was born.' Walter came in with a galvanized iron wash-tub. "'Plenty hot water, Miss South,' he said, and presently reappeared with a great kettle which he poured into the receptacle. Such a bathtub as Kirsten never had imagined she would be obliged to use. There were also pails of cold water. "'Miss Kirsten,' protested Maddie when the negro shut the door behind him, "'you can't take no bath. You can't strip here. You just can't.' Not in this wild country. I'll be as safe with my clothes off as with them on, Kirsten said as she divested herself of travel-soiled garments. Maddie dubiously prepared the tub, muttering. Kirsten, standing slender, white, lovely in every line of her young body, tested the temperature of the water with her toe. She was grave. She was thinking not so much of her surroundings, of the lack of comforts and of refinements, as she was of her ignorance. Her face was not beautiful, but it was arresting. Sometimes it was startling. Her brows tilted upward and outward, so that there were moments when she appeared oriental. The bones of the cheeks were high. People at first glance were apt to think she was beautiful. Her chestnut hair, curling tightly, was glorious. She was painfully conscious of her ignorance. She was proud, and she was ignorant of this business of raising cattle. It was pride that had driven her away from Long Island to the only spot that she could call her own, where she could be independent. Even she herself did not realize the value she set upon independence, upon keeping herself free. It is true that she might have remained in the East, a hanger-on, devising a livelihood in some parasitic manner, and waiting for an offer of marriage. With her intelligence, her charm, her popularity, she could undoubtedly have contrived to cling to the fringe until something promising security should turn up, something in the shape of a man with money. But the thought of that had been abhorrent to her. She stepped from the tub refreshed. It had not been so bad bathing in this galvanized tub. What seems unendurable in prospect often turns out to be quite practical, even pleasant in actuality. Kirsten took this as an omen. Maddie had been unpacking her trunks. Kirsten selected riding breeches and cordovan boots. They became her excellently. I'm going out to look around, she said to Maddie. I must talk to Mr. Reason. 
Unpack things, please, while I'm gone. George Reason was waiting for her on the front porch, and she was conscious of admiration in his eyes as she came through the door. I think, she said, I would like to see everything first. After that we can go over the general conditions and situation of the ranch. He opened the screen for her. At the left there, he said, is the farm. Sixty acres and hay, irrigated. We could cultivate around two hundred acres. Why haven't you? she asked. He glanced at her sidewise. I haven't got around to it, he said. They passed through the gate into the barnyard, where a Jersey cow with heavy udders looked up at them mildly. A second gate led into the corral. At the left was a horse trough, at the right the hay barn. Dilapidated, boards missing from its walls. A smaller corral separated it from the granary and the blacksmith shop. Saddles with damp blankets thrown over their pommels hung on the racks. The dust was ankle-deep. Half a dozen horses that to Kirsten looked like scrubby crowbaits munched rolled grain from nose-bags of gunny-sacking. "'What dreadful-looking horses!' Kirsten said. She had known only thoroughbreds and the polo ponies of the Meadowbrook set. "'Not too bad,' responded Reason. "'Everything looks out at heel. Run down,' she told him. "'The effort,' he said, has been to spend money only for essentials. They kicked up the dust of the smaller corral and went out by another gate. A hundred yards away she saw a group of men sitting in the shade of the bunkhouse. As they approached, a heavy-set man with bow legs got up and walked toward them. Miss South, this is Bert Mannix, your foreman, introduced Reason. Kirsten extended her hand and smiled. And this said Reason, indicating with his hand. His high pockets and Ramon and Gila. Kirsten shook hands with each, appraising them as they appraised her. She was as new and strange to them as they were to Kirsten. She liked their manifest shyness. I'm sure, she said quietly, that I shall like you all. Yes, ma'am, answered High Pockets. And this, Kirsten asked, pointing down at the sleeping sundown. Not a pleasant sight with his stubble of beard, his bloated face, his unkempt hair. Oh, him, said Mannix, stirring the man with a scornful foot. Line rider, grub line. Just walked in from Noah's. We'll feed him, and then I'll tell the boys to run him off. Awakened by Mannix's toe, the line rider opened red-rimmed eyes and stared up at Kirsten. She was quite sure that he flushed under his sun and wind-tanned skin. Almost with agility he got to his feet and snatched off his disreputable hat. "'I beg your pardon,' he said. Kirsten frowned. There was something in his voice, dull as it was, something in his inflection that aroused her curiosity. "'They did not tell me your name,' she said. "'Sundown.' he said, relapsing into apathy. "'Why did you come here?' she asked. He lifted his eyes for an instant and dropped them again. "'Why do I go anywhere?' he countered apathetically. Then, as if repeating a worn-out bit of ritual, he turned to Mannix. "'How's chances for a job?' he asked. The question reflected no hope of a favorable answer. Mannix scowled. Can you make a hand at farming? he asked. Sundown laughed. It was a harsh laugh. Top hand, he said. Top cow hand, top farm hand. Says you, growled Mannix. Around here, if you eat your work. He turned to Kirsten. My farmer quit yesterday. Then why not? Kirsten asked moved by something she did not understand about the man who shambled before her. Give this man a chance at it. Yes, am said Mannix. Again Sundown raised his eyes to Kirsten's. It seemed an effort for him to focus them upon her. I should be grateful, should I not? he asked. Well, I'm not. There's no such thing as gratitude or loyalty or honor. 
he swayed. His knees buckled and he crumpled at her feet. The man, she said, is starved. Please feed him. George Reason and Kirsten South were sitting by the dining-room table, a large and begrimed map spread between them. It was lighted by two kerosene lamps. The map was a checkerboard of little squares, each representing a section of land. That, said Reason, smoothing down the paper, is the spread. Kirsten looked at it with uncomprehending eyes. It means nothing to me she said. Suppose we make clear my position before we go ahead with the ranch. I am not out here for fun. Your letters made that clear, said Reason. My father, she said, was a very rich man with widely scattered interests. This ranch was an incident. It came into his possession as a fragment of some large transaction. He did not want it. He was not interested in it. He paid it very slight attention, agreed Reason. When he died, she said steadily, he had not made ready to die. The lawyers explained to me that he had overextended himself. At any rate, when the banks were through, there was nothing left. Nothing but this ranch. And that, I suppose, only because it was so remote and inconspicuous that no creditor wanted to bother with it. It is all I have. That is why I am here. That is why I must stay here. It is why I must learn the cattle business. This ranch must support me. I am saying these things only so you will understand that I am serious. I am not playing at ranching. It is necessity. Reason frowned uneasily. It is no business for a woman. It will have to be a business for this woman, she retorted. Now, about this map. It shows the details of your holdings. What sections are patented, what are state land leases. It shows water, wells, tanks, elevations, fences. Please explain what you mean by patented. The patented sections, he said, are those you own outright. They are strategically located to control water or for some other purpose. And the state land leases? Why do you say leases? Because that land is leased from the state. It belongs to Arizona. She lifted dark eyes to his. Then the fact is that I do not even own this ranch, she said. I only lease it. Why, yes. It is the way most large ranches are held. How long do I lease it for? she asked. My leases expire at different times. But it's better than outright ownership. The rental you pay is less than the taxes would be, and there's no actual investment. He paused. But you can sell the ranch as if you owned it. Is that a suggestion? she asked, studying him thoughtfully. I only state it as a possibility. But the cattle are mine. They are yours. How many of them are there? Including this year's calf crop he told her, between three and four thousand. Don't you know exactly? I doubt if any cattleman knows exactly how many cattle he owns. It's impossible to get them all in the roundup. You're bound to miss some. She poured over the map again. I do not understand towns and sections, she said. How many acres are there? He made a mental calculation. Round numbers, something like a hundred and thirty thousand acres. That sounds like a principality. It requires a great many acres to feed one cow, he rejoined. Are they good cattle? Fair, said Reason. There's been no effort to breed up. Breed up? Improve the quality, he answered. Why not? I've had no authority to buy and bring in good bulls. How much money does this ranch make? Not with the drought and general conditions and the price of beef, he said. We've about broken even. Other ranches make money, do they not? Yes. But this one doesn't? Your father took only slight interest in it, he explained. That, 
she said abruptly, sounds more like an excuse than a reason. The man has to have support and encouragement from the owner, he said uneasily. The conversation with this girl was proving to be less agreeable than he had expected. She was determined, and she was not without acuteness. Because of the drought, he went on, and range conditions, the calf crop has been disappointing. We've had to do a great deal of feeding, buying hay. That costs money. Have you, she asked, urged my father to do things you regarded as necessary? Have you, as ranch manager, brought these matters to his attention? She paused. I went through the files pertaining to this ranch, and I found no urgent letters from you. Mr. South paid little attention to any letters of mine. It was possible reason was right. She was compelled to admit this. Her father never had wanted this ranch. It meant nothing to him. In the press of greater affairs, he'd probably regarded it as negligible. Possibly it was not reason's fault. Possibly the man had done his best in impossible conditions. But somehow she felt that he had not done so. She was not satisfied with him, for it seemed to her either that he had regarded his job as a sinecure and had simply let matters drift while drawing a pleasant salary, or that he had deliberately avoided efficient measures for a less worthy reason. His suggestion of a sale recurred to her. It could be a fact that he wanted to buy the ranch himself, or that someone with whom he had connection wished to buy it. It was not impossible that his management had been deliberately slipshod with the purpose of lowering the value of the holding. You spoke a moment ago, she said casually and without lifting her eyes, of the possibility of a sale. What do you think the ranch would bring? It's hard to guess. It's not well fenced. No controlled breeding. No wells where there should be wells. It's a fair range, and there's always water in the river. Oh, I would say you might get thirty-five or forty thousand dollars for the ranch itself. And the cattle? That, he said slowly, would have to depend upon appraisal. Maybe another forty or fifty thousand. One quality she had in common with her father, and that was suddenness. Always she had made up her mind swiftly. Always she had acted more abruptly than perhaps the circumstances justified. It was said of her that she never looked before she leaped. In describing her, someone had said that her vocabulary contained no such word as consequences. Her reputation had been for rashness, rashness in a motor car, rashness on a horse's back, rashness in any emergency, major or minor, that confronted her. This estimate was not wholly just. It is true she was willful. It is true she did very little hesitating. But on the other hand, she possessed seeing eyes and resolution and courage. Frequently it was not mere willfulness, but a quicker appraisal of the facts than was possible to others. She was one who trusted first judgments, and was impatient with long mental debate. She agreed with her father, who, in his turn, agreed with Napoleon, that it was better to have a subordinate who reached a thousand decisions, with five hundred of them wrong, than one who reached only one decision and it correct. Now, moved by intuition, by impression rather than by substantial fact, Kirsten made up her mind, and with her to make up her mind was to act. Mr. Reason, she said, bad management or sloppy management is worse than no management at all. I've done a good job in the circumstances, he said. No, a bad job is not a good job by any twisting or turning of it. A good job is to lick circumstances, not to be licked by them. And if you had been a good manager, you would have forced things to be done. I do not know what the customary notice is, but thirty days is reasonable. You will receive a month's salary. Your authority ends now. You're firing me, he asked, astonished. Forthwith, Kirsten said, quoting one of her father's favorite words. You're not being fair, he protested. I haven't time to be fair, she said. 
But, Miss South, be reasonable. You know nothing. You can't get along without me. I, she said, can get along without anyone. I will write your check. The truck will take you to the junction in the morning. You will regret this, he said it angrily. My father used to say that regrets are the calluses on the hands of accomplishment. She wrote out his check and slid it across the table to him. I'm sorry, Mr. Reason, she said, but her voice was not regretful. Good night. Reason slammed the door after him. Kirsten sat, temples in soft palms, and stared at the map spread before her. She was not happy. She was not apprehensive because she had given Reason his time, but she was apprehensive because she had been compelled to do so. She was acutely, painfully conscious of her aloneness. There was no support upon which to lean. She was on her own. The vastness of the territory suggested by the map appalled her. The little room with its ancient golden oak table chilled her. The tiny sheet-iron stove suggested her remoteness from all that had been precious to her. Outside, the coyote ululated. Then from the kitchen, where Walter the colored cook was completing the task of washing dishes for the hands and herself, came the sound of a voice intoning. It was deep, rich, beautifully vibrant and reverent. Perhaps he had been standing beside the window, gazing out upon the moon-drenched crags of the surrounding mountains and had been moved by them. I will lift up mine eyes under the hills, Kirsten heard that splendid voice recite. From whence cometh my help. Kirsten went into the stillness of her bedroom, brushed aside the curtain, and looked out over the black mass of the ramshackle barn to the imposing jagged bulk of the mountain peak, unearthly in that silver flood of light. I will lift up mine eyes into the hills, she whispered. It was perhaps the first time in her life that Kirsten South had quoted from the book. The heat of the night had been imperceptibly less than the heat of the day. Kirsten South tossed upon her bed under a sheet that burned her skin. Never had she known such acute discomfort. Her thoughts flitted from doubt to dread to fear. Mere apprehensions became terrors. Self-confidence wore thin and raveled. The whole Arizona adventure presented itself as a ghastly nightmare. The future appalled her. The task she had set for herself, the management of a vast ranch, seemed fantastic. That she, raised and educated as she had been, could ever master the intricacies of the cattle business was absurd. She saw herself as a ridiculous failure, and the pit of her stomach was cold within her. She welcomed the hot dawn, but arose to an uncomfortable feeling that she must do something useful, must take some action. But she had not the remotest idea what activity to undertake. Nevertheless, having taken the bit in her teeth by giving George Reason his time, she must somehow justify herself if not in her own eyes, then in the eyes of her employees. She wondered uneasily what effect her suddenness would have upon the foreman in her hands. The black man in the kitchen had breakfast ready. He had already served the bunkhouse. Mr. Mannix, wait for you when you're done, he said. Thank you, Walter, she answered, somehow grateful for his presence. I'll see him now if you will call him. Presently Mannix came in stood uncomfortable, resentful, sullen, with hat in hand. "'Won't you sit down?' she asked. "'Reason is going?' he asked, ignoring her courtesy. "'What about me?' "'What about you?' she countered. "'A man likes to know where he's at,' said Mannix. She smiled at him. "'Mr. Mannix,' she said, "'I would like to know where I am at.' You are as strange to me as I am to you. Suppose we withhold our judgment of each other until we're better acquainted. I assure you that I want to like you and have confidence in you. 
A man don't like to be dependent on a woman's whims, he said sullenly. Mr. Mannix, she said, if you are asking for your time, you may have it. At the moment you are foreman of this ranch. I know of no reason why you should not continue to be so. I've heard no criticism of your work, and there must be a great deal of work to do. She smiled again, and when she smiled her face was very charming and ingratiating indeed. It is up to you, as my father used to say, fish or cut bait. Meaning what, ma'am? Meaning, said Kirsten, either ask for your time or go ahead with your job and show me you are the man I want. She decided to take it for granted that he would not quit. Have you given your orders for the day? I was waiting, he said. You don't, she said, need to wait any longer. For an instant he hesitated, rolling the brim of his wide hat in his calloused palms. Yes, am he said, and turned with bow-legged stiffness and walked out of the house. Presently, through the front window of the ranch house, Kirsten saw Mannix and High Pockets and Ramon ride out of the corral. She wondered exactly what they would be doing during the day. What was the purpose of saddling and riding out upon the range? It must be essential routine, but what? Again, she felt engulfed in ignorance. She heard the rumble of the pickup truck crossing the irrigation ditch and knew that George Reason was being driven into town. Her next unpleasant discovery was that there was no ice, that there never was ice. There was a low-roofed cellar just outside the kitchen door where certain supplies were kept, and back of the house was a curious device, covered with screening and topped with burlap, which by some process of evaporation mysterious to her, kept a few perishables in a state of coolness somewhat below the outside temperature. One never knows how important ice has become in one's everyday life until it cannot be obtained. Miss South, said Walter warningly as she stepped from the porch, you ain't so to say acquainted round here. You better keep an open eye for Rattlers. They's prevalent. She saw a figure doing something with a shovel beside the fenced field at her left and walked toward him. It was the man who had given his name as Sundown. He seemed to be releasing water from a small ditch into the field. Good morning, she said. He nodded without speaking and continued to ply his shovel. What are you doing? she asked. He turned his face toward her. It seemed to her a brutish sort of face, but the hat pulled down over the eyes and the unsightly stubble covering cheeks and chin made it impossible to guess exactly what the man would look like. It was certain, however, that the gray eyes were hard and hostile. Irrigating, he said, and she noted with some surprise that he pronounced the final G. Your name is Sundown? Yes. He did not have the customary ma'am. What else? she asked. If, he said, you ask me questions about my work, I'll answer. Since birth she had been accustomed to well-trained servants, both house and estate. Here was a man, practically a tramp, who occupied a position that might be compared to that of a gardener, and he was deliberately rude. It interested her more than it angered her. Last night you fainted from hunger. You have eaten my food. I have given you a job. Doesn't that entitle me to ordinary courtesy? she asked. His hostile eyes lifted again to hers. Why? he demanded. He offered a challenge. He was something new in her experience. He excited her curiosity. There is such a thing, she said, as decent gratitude. I don't use it, he answered harshly. Are you then one of these radicals? A red or a communist or something like that? She had heard social unrest discussed over the dinner table, and had gained the idea that all malcontents with the existing order of things were ungrateful people. To be a radical, he said, you have to give a damn. And you don't give a damn? No. That, she said, 
sound silly. It was rather curious, but she found she was talking to him as an equal. Nobody can live without caring about something. Family, friends, self. You can't live and be indifferent to everything. To say that you are is to pose. She peered at the reddening stubble of beard, striving to estimate his age. You talk, she said, like a sophomore who has had his fingers burned. You were posing. Even those awful whiskers are a pose. Something happened that you didn't like and you went into this act. You should know an act when you see it, he said. Meaning what? Glamour girl forsakes society to become cowgirl, he quoted. Have you ever done anything but act? Have you ever done a natural, spontaneous thing in your life? She did not ask herself why she should care, but she did not want this unkempt tramp, this rider of the grub line, to think that of her. Along with this desire was surprise that such a creature should casually use the word spontaneous. I hated it, she exclaimed hotly. And my coming here was not a publicity stunt. I came because I had to, because there was nowhere else to go. This ranch is everything I own in the world. It should be entertaining to watch, he said sardonically. I'll try, she said, to supply less amusement than you hope for. Then, frowning a little, why did you come to this ranch? Because it happened to be on a road I was following he said. Why did you choose this road? Because it led to dry places, he said bitterly. Because the farther I traveled it, the farther I departed from whiskey. So there is something you do care about. You want to stop drinking? No. I want to be away from places where there was whiskey I couldn't buy. If my money had held out, I'd have continued to press my belly against the bar. He muttered something that failed to reach her ears. What did you say? she asked. To eat the lotus of the Nile and drink the poppies of Cathay, he repeated. What do you want to forget? she asked. That, he said, would be no business of yours. You're rather vain of being a derelict, she said testily. Then, impulsively, I do wish you'd have the decent pride to shave your face. Suppose, said Sundown, and there was unfriendliness in eyes and tone and gesture. We state the position, after which it will suit me fine if you leave me alone. I don't give a damn. I want nobody's respect. I want no friends to throw me down in the pinches. I want nothing of the world but food and a place to sleep. I want no more contact with men or women than is necessary. I do not want to be lied to, deceived, cheated. I want to be let alone. I do not like anyone, and quite emphatically, I do not like you. She was not angry, and it surprised her that this should be so. On the contrary, she felt a real sympathy for Sundown, an exasperated sympathy. As he stood there, morosely leaning upon his shovel, he seemed, of a sudden, much younger than herself, though his appearance proclaimed him to be twenty years older. He was warped, twisted. He was bitterly resentful, because, she guessed, he'd reposed a great trust in someone, and it had been betrayed. It would be a woman. She read romance into his story. Very well she said. You dislike me. I quite despise you as a quitter. On that basis of mutual esteem, we will leave it. Do the work for which you were hired, and there'll be no more occasion for conversation between us. She turned abruptly and walked toward the house. He stood for moments, leaning upon his shovel, his bleak gray eyes following the grace of her movements with unwinking unfriendliness. He turned and plunged his shovel into the moist soil. The remainder of that day Kirsten spent in settling herself in her new home, and in bewildering herself with the books and papers George Reason had left in the little shack, which had been both his bedroom and his office. 
First she studied the surveyor's map of the Broken H Ranch, puzzling out patented lands, state land leases, water rights. There was no one to explain the thing to her. It had such a look of vastness and complexity that new depression settled upon her. She folded the map and turned to the books of the outfit. They were primitive. Cattlemen notoriously are the most haphazard bookkeepers in the world. Men in that industry are individualists. They deal with the out-of-doors and are impatient of making scratches on pieces of paper. Add to this that Kirsten knew no more about bookkeeping than she did about Sanskrit, and it will be perceived that she found little solid meat into which to set her teeth. She did learn the wages that were paid to the foreman and the cowboys. She discovered that she paid the state a rental of a cent and a half an acre per year for state lands. But for the life of her, she could not find out if the ranch had made or lost money up to the moment of her arrival. There was no filing cabinet. It had been reasons practice to put correspondence and documents in a wooden cracker box without any attempt at alphabetical order or subject. Quite evidently, he had carried the business in his head, if he had carried it at all. For hours, Kirsten labored in that intense heat, striving to glean some grains of fact from the mass. All she discovered that was satisfactory to her was that there was a sum of money on deposit in a bank in Phoenix. Whether it was enough to carry through, she did not know, but certainly it should be sufficient to pay wages and buy supplies for a reasonable time. At least the immediate future was secure. Eye-weary and bedraggled, she went to the house for lunch. It was no dainty repast such as she had been accustomed to at midday. It consisted of frijoles, gentlemen from Texas stew, chili and sourdough biscuits served on thick dishes. Walter's idea of service was to place things rapidly and in abundance upon the table. The water from the well was at least cool. Also, he had set two places. It seemed that Walter had no conception of social caste. "'You mean I'm gonna set and eat with you, Miss Kirsten?' asked Maddie. "'It seems,' said Kirsten, "'to be the custom among the Romans. "'Sit down, Maddie. "'I can't bear the thought of eating alone.' "'Miss Kirsten, this ain't no place for a lady. "'I'm scared. "'Miss Kirsten, it was a foolhardy thing "'to come traipsing way out here.' "'Hush your foolishness,' Kirsten snapped. "'What one of them wild cowboys said to me this morning?' Maddie exclaimed indignantly. "'What did he say to you?' "'He looked me all over from head to toe, and then he says, "'Fat's the purtiest color there is.' "'For the first time since her arrival, Kirsten laughed. "'It transformed her face into something very young and lovely indeed.' It did something more than transform her face. It made this strange world to which she had been so rudely transported a real place instead of a nightmare. Somehow she was able to understand that the utterance of the cowboy had not been an impertinence, but was in the nature of a sincere compliment. He had stated a fundamental truth in the vigorous, spicy, witty idiom of his kind. That is the purtiest color. It stated a basic thing, that here, in this land, in this environment, in this business of raising beef to feed a nation, utility was more important than beauty. A cow with meat on its bones was more desirable than a cow that was merely comely, and this truth extended to women. These Arizona men would desire their women to be useful rather than lovely, for women were no mere ornaments to a home. But partners in labor. A sturdy woman was more to be desired than one endowed with frail loveliness. You weren't insulted, Maddie, Kirsten said. You and I must learn the language. She was thinking aloud. This country isn't out of step with us. We are out of step with it. We've got to catch the rhythm. The only rhythm I want to catch, Miss Kirsten, is rhythm and back to Long Island. Very well said Kirsten. Pack your trunk. I'll have you carried to the junction in the morning. You and me, said Maddie. Just you, Kirsten said. You mean you're gonna stick here, with 
nobody to talk to and no way of spending your evenings. You ain't going to be that foolish, Miss Kirsten. You just can't do it. You might's well be dead. I'm staying, Maddie, Kirsten said. I'm staying hell or high water. That's final. I hate it. I hate every rock and mountain and grain of sand. But I've started this thing and I'm going to see it through. I'm not going to run back with my tail between my legs. You got one of them stubborn moods on you, Maddie said dolefully. The stubbornest you ever saw. Maddie sighed dolorously. All right, all right. Whatever happens to me is on your head. If you're set and bound to stay, there ain't nothing I can do but protest. Where you be, I gotta be. But it ain't right and it ain't wise. Evil'll come of it. If, said Kirsten, you're going to stay, then hush your noise. I've enough to worry me without having to stop every hour to soothe you. I've said my say, Maddie replied grimly. She heard hoofbeats and the creaking of the corral gate as it opened. There was a pause while a horse was being unsaddled, and then Kirsten saw Mannix walking toward the bunkhouse. She had not talked to him, appraised him, except for the few unsatisfactory moments in the morning. So she followed Walter as he carried food for the foreman's lunch. Walter placed the dishes on the table, and Mannix stomped in, stopped as he saw Kirsten, embarrassed at her presence in the room. It was not a woman's room. To Kirsten's mind, it was not a man's room, either. There was no vestige of comfort. There was a reddened cook-stove, a table without cloth, a couple of wooden benches, a rough lumber-stand upon which was a tin wash-basin. The floors were littered. To her it seemed a veritable rat's nest. "'Don't let your lunch grow cold,' she said to Mannix. He crowded himself behind the table. "'Gotta move the cattle from the desert range,' he said. "'Why?' "'No feed. Better around Heckamore Springs.' "'Why isn't there feed?' "'Drought,' said Mannix succinctly. "'Drought!' He bore down on the word as he uttered it the second time. "'I've got twenty bulls in the corral at Hackamore feeding them hay. i got to take a mess of calves away from their mothers and feed them.' "'The drought is bad.' "'Terrible,' said Mannix. "'Outfits north of here has had to sell off their stock to keep it from starving. Couldn't afford to buy hay.' Cattle dying like flies. Are we in danger of losing cattle? Yes'm. It was bad last year. We had a miserable calf crop. Half-fed cows don't have calves. Now if something ain't done, we're going to lose what we got. What must be done? By hay, said Mannix. Hay's high. Hay's always high in a drought year. How much does it cost? First-class hay is up to twelve dollars a ton. Poorer hay can be got cheaper. A lot of the stock can scratch for itself, but them calves can't, and them bulls gotta be pompered. She was able to guess from the context that he was telling her the bulls must be pampered. They're looking mighty gant and drawed, he said. How much hay shall we need to buy? All we can get, he said. Figure... Ten, twelve pounds a day to each cow? Say we gotta feed maybe three, four hundred till we get rain and the feed grows. She made rapid mental calculation. That might run to thousands of dollars, she said. Depending on the weather. When, she asked, may we expect to have some money coming in? We usually sell after the fall roundup. November. Like I said... Some is selling now, cause they can't help it. Prices ain't good. Five and a half and six cents. Broken H don't get top prices. Why? We ain't got the quality of cattle. Lack of breeding up. Off color, sorry confirmation. To fetch this herd up where it belongs, we ought to throw in maybe fifty first class white faced bulls. How much would that cost? she asked. Depends on age and quality. Up to the Denver show, you could maybe pick up some little six-month-old fellas for a hundred and fifty apiece, a year before you'd get any good at them. Would you say, she asked, that this ranch has been neglected? 
he hesitated and wriggled in his seat. "'I might have done different if I'd had the say,' he replied finally. "'It's been allowed to slide.' "'Yes'm.' "'From today it stopped sliding, Mr. Mannix. "'Do you know if this ranch has been making money?' "'Only what I've heard talked.' "'That it isn't.' "'Yes'm.' "'But it can.' "'It's a good spread. "'With the right feller running it, it ought to pay good.' "'You don't like to work for a woman, do you?' she asked suddenly. "'No,' he answered. "'I hope I can make you like it,' she said. "'I'll hold up my end,' he said without enthusiasm, "'if I ain't meddled with.' She had been studying him, striving to assess his values and defects. He had the look of a trustworthy man. It was her opinion that he knew his business, knew cattle, could be a competent foreman, but nothing more. He had a solid look. She guessed that he had loyalty to give if once it could be won. But he resented her, resented a woman superior. He was suspicious. Before he could be valuable to her, she must allay his suspicions and win his loyalty. She did not know how to go about it. To exert charm would do no good. She must prove herself, must demonstrate qualities which his character and experience would know how to admire. She wondered if she possessed that sort of attribute. Mr. Mannix, she said, I hope we can work together. I mean to succeed with this ranch. I mean to be fair. I have a great deal to learn, but I shall learn it. I shall try to understand you. My hope is that you will try to understand me. In the meantime, you may depend upon it that I will back you up in anything that is necessary for the betterment of this ranch. You will have to explain things to me, but when you have explained and convinced me, I will stand back of you. She hesitated and moved toward the door. Until hell freezes over, she said, and stepped outside. She lay down on a stringy hammock on the porch. Suddenly she realized the dreadful monotony of the place. With actual dread she looked forward to the evening, and to the next evening, and to a hundred evenings after that. There would be no entertainment, no friends dropping in. The nearest movie theater was more than sixty miles away. How, she asked herself, did people live? How did they retain their sanity? How was she to know that evenings did not exist? That exhausted cowboys rode in at sundown, snatched a weary meal, and were snoring loudly at an hour so early that her friends in New York would not even have started the night's frolic. To a wearied body there is no monotony. But this she had yet to learn. Her body never had been weary with toil. She had gone into the house to get one of the few books she had brought with her when she heard the rumble of the boards that spanned the irrigation ditch. A large car, carrying two men, stopped outside the gate. The strangers alighted. One was coatless, on the fattish side, and quite evidently an urban man. The other was young, at least six feet tall, slender and muscular. His dark face was aquiline with heavy black brows that met over a nose that would become an eagle's beak in old age. For one so young, his appearance was distinguished. The adipose individual rapped on the back door, which was the handiest to the gate, and Kirsten heard him ask Walter if Miss South was at home. The cook showed them into the dining room. With the gusto of a go-getter, the tubby man introduced himself. "'I'm Sam Boston, Miss South,' he said. "'Everybody in Arizona knows me. Bought and sold more ranches than any two men in the history of the state. This here is Mr. March, Philip March.' prospective buyer. Yes'm, early bird catches the worm. Soon's I heard you'd come, I run him right out. Mr. Boston ran out of words and breath. Kirsten nodded to each of them impersonally. She was not interested in Sam Boston, but any young woman would have given a second glance to Philip March. He was tailored. He wore linen riding trousers and cordovan boots as if he were accustomed to them. He lifted his brows at her, and let his eyes twinkle as if he were taking her into a joke. He indicated that the joke was Sam Boston. "'Won't you sit down?' asked Kirsten. 
I can offer you water a bit cooler than the air. I'm afraid nothing else. Knowing, said Sam Boston, that this ranch ain't anything but an encumbrance to you, Miss South, I says to myself, I'll do the little lady a favor. I'll drop everything and go right out and take it off her hands. Never wasted a second. That's Sam Boston all over. On the dot, on the spot. Kirsten peered at the pudgy man. And how, she asked, did you learn that this ranch is for sale? It stuck out, said Mr. Boston, like a sore thumb with a white bandage on it. You have an office? Finest real estate office in Phoenix, the gym city of the Salt River Valley. Indeed, and may I ask how news of my arrival reached the gym of the valley? Miss South, Sam Boston gets all the news and gets it first. Anybody that wants the lowdown on anything comes to Sam Boston. Kirsten was weighing this fact, that her arrival was known in Phoenix, a hundred and fifty miles away. In the ordinary course of human events, so minor a piece of news would not have reached Arizona's metropolis so soon. It might indeed never have reached it. Someone, therefore, had given the information. Someone, for a purpose of his own, had informed this ranch broker of her arrival. A tiny alarm bell rang to awaken her suspicion. Once in a while, she said sweetly, once in a great, great while, Mr. Boston, you collect a bit of misinformation. She turned to Philip March. I am sorry, Mr. March, she said courteously, that you were brought out on a wild goose chase. The ranch is not for sale. What? demanded Sam Boston explosively. At the moment, Kirsten said, I was speaking to Mr. March. If you were brought here by the representation that this ranch is on the market, I would, in your place, make Mr. Boston walk back to town. But I got a cash offer. Cash. Listen, Miss South, what's a socialite like you gonna do with a cow ranch? Tell me that. Why, you don't know any more about cows than I do about... Mr. Boston fumbled in his mind for the completion of his metaphor, but Kirsten supplied it. Than you do about good manners, she said. March spoke gaily. There was a jaunty, debonair air about him that affected Kirsten agreeably. Sam, he said, you haven't endeared yourself to Miss South. Even I, happy-go-lucky as I am, feel a sting of irritation. You assured me this ranch was for sale. Now suppose you go out to the car and take a nap while I apologize to Miss South. No necessity for apologies, Kirsten told him as Sam lumbered out of the door. You are the victim. Vaguely, she wondered if he really were the victim. And you really mean to live here and manage this ranch? He asked with patent admiration. I'm going to give it the old college try, she said. Hardly seems like the thing for Kirsten South, he said agreeably. A little out of your line. If I ever was famous for anything, she said, it was for having no line. I've heard you spoken of as unpredictable, he said. By whom? A little bird, he said in just the right tone of humor. But really, don't you think this is too tough? The loneliness, the hardship, the utter lack of civilized human companionship. To say nothing of droughts, blackwater fever, rattlesnakes, unfriendly neighbors, lawsuits. Again the little alarm bell rang. Unfriendly neighbors and lawsuits. Why should my neighbors be unfriendly? And who will commence a lawsuit and for what reason? she asked. I'm just reciting the daily routine of a cattleman's life, he said quickly. You wouldn't, as a wishful purchaser, be trying to make the future look so dark that I might fold up and sell. She turned her eyes away and glanced at the window behind Philip March. Perhaps some slight movement attracted her eye. She saw a human head. Someone was crouching there, listening, eavesdropping. Instantly the head whisked itself away, but not before she had recognized the hirsute adornment of sundown. In my capacity as knight-errant, said March, I should be happy to discourage you, but not for my advantage. I am not discouraged, said Kirsten. Then, asked March, may I not come back some day socially? 
If necessary, I can supply unimpeachable credentials. We might even, when the weather abates, arrange notable merrymaking in Phoenix. Your application, she said, will be filed under the letter M and taken under advisement in its turn. But her mind was not upon the repartee. It was upon sundown. Why had he, this man who would have been described by her father as a stumble-bum, been interested in her talk with Boston in March? This stumble-bum who asserted a total lack of interest in life itself. She determined to confront him as soon as the visitors were gone. Some instinct, some subconscious leakage out of the infinite, caused her to be inquisitive. Rather too many things were happening to be wholly normal. Quite definitely she suspected Sam Boston. Of what, she did not know, but she viewed him with suspicion. Regarding Philip March, she reserved her judgment. He extended his hand and smiled with perfect amiability. Not as a man who had driven a hundred and fifty miles through blistering heat for nothing. Not as a man who must drive a hundred and fifty miles back with disappointment for a companion. Sorry to have annoyed you, he said. We must start. It is a long way to Phoenix, and your roads are not boulevards. Goodbye, Mr. March, she said, neither warmly nor coldly. She heard his feet as they shuffled through the hot sand to his car. In that clear air, voices carry in an unbelievable manner. People who exchange confidences would be well advised to speak lips to ear. Kirsten heard Sam Boston say, Tarnation, stubborn little she-cat! She has claws, replied Philip March. We'll have to bear down and put on the pressure. Kristen went back to the porch and sat down. How would they bear down? What pressure would they exert? And why? She saw Sundown walk along the corral fence, but she did not go out to interrogate him. In the circumstances, she concluded, it was better to keep her mouth closed tightly and her eyes very wide open indeed. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Arizona Showdown. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.